All right, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I hope you still have your finger there in that part of the Bible. We're going to work our way through six verses here for a few minutes this morning. Characters in a movie, uh, Red said to his fellow prisoner, there were prisoners, well, in a prison. I guess that's the only place you'd be a prisoner. And one prisoner said to Red, he's, he hoped to be able to escape uh, from prison. And Red said this to him, if you've seen the film, you know the line, it's a great line. Hope is a dangerous thing. Hope is a dangerous thing. And he was serious. He said, you know, at a certain point, hope is, all it's going to do is make things harder. All it's going to do is make things more difficult because the only thing worse than being in a tough situation is hoping to get out of it and not. And that's failed hope. And he said, hope is a dangerous thing. We need to understand why that's important to think about is because hope, as Red was talking about it, and as we think about it, is one thing where hope in the Scripture is another kind of thing. Look with me at verse 4 of Ephesians 4. There is one body, one spirit, and just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. And we're going to talk this morning about that one hope. But we have to start by explaining and understanding that this is not wishful thinking of a prisoner who longs to escape from prison. This isn't wish upon a star, fairy dust sprinkled upon your hopes and dreams. Hope in the scripture is something that is certain but is not yet experienced or seen. Hope is something that's bound up in the finished work of Christ and is as certain as today, but we don't yet see it or experience it. Hope, in fact, is our destination. Hope isn't just something we uh, think about to try and make ourselves feel better to get through a hard day. Hope is our destination. It is a place we will end up at one time. Let me ex- look at this over in Romans 8, and we'll get back to Ephesians 4 probably by 12.30 or 1. Some of you are hoping to get to the start of the Daytona 500. Forget it. No, I'm, that's a good hope. You'll make it. Okay. Romans 8.23. We ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So he's saying this. As those who are in the Spirit, those who have received Christ by faith... Inwardly we groan because we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. Now, in Christ, are we adopted as sons and daughters? Yes, but he's saying here we don't yet experience it fully. That full adoption of sons where we see our Father and He sees us and we talk with each other and walk around and do whatever. He says we inwardly groan saying we're not home yet. Uh, We understand the biblical truth that we're sons of the King by faith, but we groan inwardly, waiting for our redemption and our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. If you're younger, the redemption of your body doesn't mean as much. As you get older, you get out of bed and put your feet on the ground and everything starts to hurt. Then as you get a little older, it's hurting before you try to get out of bed. And he's saying there are days going to come and these frailties and these weaknesses are a reminder we're not home yet, but we have a hope. We say there is a hope. There's a place we're going. Verse 24 of Romans 8, for in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes what he sees? If we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. 
So what we learn from the Bible is we have a hope, and we don't see it yet. And we hope in it, not as though we wish it were. We hope in it as one who knows it's coming, but it's not here yet. Well, we hope it's later today, but if it's not, it'll be tomorrow. And if it's not then, it'll be the next day. But one day we will experience uh, the fruition, the completion of our hope. So our hope is certain in Christ. In fact, that's what he said in Ephesians 1.18. Have the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Why does he say, have the eyes of your heart enlightened? Some of you took anatomy class when you were in high school or college, and you don't remember, you remember a left ventricle and an aorta. You don't remember eyes, right? Why why doesn't he say, have our eyes open, our regular eyes, the eyes of our heart? So he's using a figure of speech. He's saying, I want you in your soul to know and trust that you have a hope that you can see by faith. You're not going to see it with your eyes. If you could see it with your eyes, is it hope? No, Romans 8 told us, once you see it, you no longer hope. It's there. You hope for Christmas until Christmas Eve, then Christmas Day, you don't need to hope for Christmas. It's there. And he says, have the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that is, have faith to rest in the assurance that he has called us into a hope of the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So he's saying, I want you to see with the eyes of your heart, with eyes of faith, that you have received from Christ through the cross the inheritance that he gives us. That is our hope, that one day we will stand in his presence and he'll say, welcome to my kingdom, your co-owner. Let's get after it for all of eternity. So we have one hope that we share together. We have one hope that our eyes of our hearts have to see by faith, but we don't yet fully experience. So the question is, what does this hope do for us and do in us now? What does it do in us and for us now? Is it just supposed to make us feel better when we're having bad days? Does it give us answers to questions when life doesn't fall into place the way we thought it should? What should this hope do for us? Well, let's figure that out. Or at least let's look at the Bible and see what it says. So let's start in verse 1 of Ephesians 4. Turn back there if you're not already there. I'll read it again. One hope. First thing this hope does in us and for us is hope gives us a new direction. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Okay, we're going to stop there. Just one verse for now. So he says in this first verse, this one hope that we have gives us a new direction, a new walk. He says, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, which is a different walk than you had before. In The Lord of the Rings, Bilbo Baggins says this to his nephew, Frodo. It's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out your door. You step onto the road And if you don't keep your feet, there's no telling where you might be swept off to. That's a great way to start a book, by the way. If you don't keep your feet, there's no telling what direction you'll be swept off to. And Bilbo Baggins understood something that we often get confused in our Christian walk. He understood that wherever your feet go, you're also there. You don't get to walk one direction and also be in another place. The path, the the way we're walking, the way we're going is based on where we're walking. You don't get to be one place and also another place at the same time. Why is this important? 
Because he says, I want you to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling you have been given, which is in contrast to how you used to walk. Look at Ephesians 2, verse 1. He, ta- he is talking about walking in a different way in Ephesians 2, verse 1 and 2. Before you knew Christ, you were dead in your trespasses in sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So he's saying this, you can walk one of two ways. You can walk according to the, to the ways of the world and the ways of the spirit of the power of the air, that is the devil, or you can walk in a manner worthy of the calling you have been given. But what you don't get to do is walk both ways. Bilbo Baggins understood this. You've got to keep your feet. Otherwise, you don't know where you're going to be swept off to. So this is the tricky part. What we like to do as Christians is say, well, I'm walking according to my ways of Christ uh, at home and at church, but at work, you know, I'm a different guy there. And so you can't, that's not possible. You can't walk one way and then another way. It's you either walk in a manner worthy of your calling or you walk in a manner of your former life. You can't walk in both places at the same time without the use of a knife or a saw. And then you're dead. Walk based on who you are. Based on who you are in Christ, he says, you have been called into those who have inherited. You have inherited the kingdom of God with Christ. He says, walk that way. Walk in a manner as one who has inherited the kingdom of God in Christ. And no longer walk in the way you used to walk. The ways of the world. The ways of sin. You're called to a new direction. A new manner. A new way that's based on where you're going. A new way of living that's based on a destination that is certain. So here's the important thing to remember. He wants us to walk in a manner that's consistent with what we're called to and the hope we have. He doesn't want us to walk so that we would have hope. That's another mistake we make as Christians. We say, well, the way I can make sure that I'm a good Christian is by being a good Christian. And that's just a way to live your life in discouragement, because let me know if you end up being a good Christian. The best way to find out, make yourself a good Christian is to lower your standards. And then that doesn't work. So he's not saying the destination is to live a good life. What he is saying is we have a certain destination that's in Christ, and based on where we're going, live in a manner that's consistent with where we're going and with who we are in Christ. Let me explain it this way. You might have a GPS in your car. If you don't, you have a phone that you sometimes put the GPS on in your car. That GPS device only cares about where you're going. It doesn't care how you get there. It doesn't care if you're in a good mood or a bad mood. It doesn't care if you're speeding or not. Well, mine doesn't anyway. If yours does, look for the way to turn that off. (laughs) It honestly doesn't even care how you get there. If you make a wrong turn, it'll adjust and say, okay, we'll go this way. All it cares about is the end point. That's all it cares about. It just cares about where, we're, where you're going. But what, what the Bible is teaching us here is that hope says, I already know where I'm going, and so the manner in which I get there is important. I want to live as one who is going to a place of great hope and joy and want to live as one who has got a great destination. Maybe another way of thinking about this. 
You're going to take two road trips to Southern California. Two people taking two road trips to Southern California. You're going to take the same route, Interstate 5. What a joy. A lot of fun until you get past Sacramento. Then it's just a straight road through the middle of nowhere. So one family is going to Disneyland. So what's going on in that car all the way down there? Are we there yet? Ah, party. We're watching the Disney movies on the DVD player. Everybody's having a good time, right? The other car right behind them, caravan, going to the same place. They're the, instead, though, they're going to go visit their relative in the hospital who's probably going to die in a couple of days. So are those two people going to drive the same route? Yes. Are those two people going to approach that trip differently? Probably the people going to visit their relative in the hospital, they're not going to have rabbit ears on and Mickey Mouse shirts and waving Disneyland flags out the window. Are they? It'd be weird. And what, what the Bible is telling us, no, take, we're taking this journey as though we're going to a particular place and we ought to live knowing to the hope we're going to. We need to live as those who are going to be in the kingdom of God with God forever. And our walk, our direction today should be in a manner consistent with that hope. That hope is certain. It's, it's sure. Our, and our walk today needs to be informed by where we're going. We walk in a manner worthy. We don't walk in a manner in order to become worthy. Christ already made us worthy. He says, walk in a manner that says, I'm going to the kingdom. Our life should be defined by our destination. So the question you should ask yourself before we move on to verse 2 is, where are you going? What's your destination? What's your hope? Is your hope in the kingdom? Is your hope in the certain inheritance we have in Christ? Is your hope there? If it is, then your life should be marked by walking in a manner that's worthy of that hope. One uh, writer said this way, people are not searching for answers in this life. Now think about it. You, you can decide if you agree with this or not after I say the rest of the question. He said, people are not searching for answers. They're searching for happiness. People are not seeking answers to the riddles of this life, they're seeking answers for why they're not happy in this life. And what this means is we have to understand, where does my joy lie? Does it lie in the, the journey I'm on here, or does it lie in another place? Is my joy fixed to my experience day, to day, day in and day out here, or is my joy fixed on another place I haven't seen yet? And if I'm seeking joy and happiness in the Lord, I'm going to fix it there in the ups and downs in this life are going to be journeyed as one who has a better hope than the ups and downs of this world. Hope gives us a new direction, a new manner of walking. All right, let's move on to verse 2. Benefit, I want to look at one of the benefits of walking in a manner worthy of the calling, and this is this. Hope gives us a new vision. What we said first, hope gives us a new direction, and hope gives us a new vision. Let me read verses 2, 3, and 4 again, of Ephesians 4. You have been, uh, walk according to the manner of you have been called, with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I'm actually stopped there. Walk with humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So hope gives us a new vision. In fact, more precisely, hope gives us a new vision of others and about others. 
So you may have read about this gentleman named Aaron, football coach, security guard, all-around good guy down in Florida. You read the stories about this guy? Now, beforehand, it seems like everybody liked Aaron. But Aaron, when the shooter was shooting up Parkland, uh, the high school there in Parkland, he's credited with saving many students' lives by shielding them with his own body. And he lost his life. Now, we, the folks of that community saw Aaron one way. He was a great a security guard. He was a great assistant football coach. But now they see him in a whole new light. What do they call him now? He is a hero. Now, his character didn't change. He was the same guy. He was the kind of guy who would do that thing, but no one had ever seen him do that kind of thing. There had never been a call to. But now that this has happened and uh, he has lost his life protecting these students, everybody sees him differently. In fact, I'm sure there are some in the community that wish they would have seen him differently when he was still alive. So, well, I wouldn't have imagined he was that kind of a heroic person. And so what has happened is folks now see him differently, and they ought to see him differently, knowing that he gave his life for others. The Bible is calling us here in, in light of our destination together to see one another differently, to see one another with a new vision of how we relate with one another. We are actually to see one another based on the hope we have together in Christ, We're to see one another as those fellow people on the destination of arriving at our hope one day. We tend to look at one another in the way we see each other today. How we might behave, how we might act, how we might talk, what kind of work we do, what kind of family we have. And what the Bible is describing here is a community of believers who see one another as those who have fixed their hope in another place. Another place this is referenced is over in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. I'm going to read several verses here. It's a similar theme, and it helps highlight this a little bit. So here's what it says in Colossians verse 11. I'm going to read until I get tired of reading. So here, that is, in the body of believers, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised. There is not barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but rather, Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive." And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So he says, in the body of Christ, those who have fixed their hope in a place we cannot see yet, there is not to be divisions based on racial background or economic background or educational backgrounds or employment backgrounds. In fact, he says this, relate to one another with compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and patience. If someone has a complaint against one another, forgive them. Completely, he doesn't even give any outs on that. But you don't know this so-and-so. And and the Bible is saying there, yeah, just forgive them. Well, how much should I forgive them? Well, just as much as Jesus forgave you, so you're fine. Well, how much is that? Kind of forever. Well, they're going to take advantage of me. Yeah, yeah, they are. Because you took advantage of Christ. So it's no big deal. 
So you're fine because you've got a better hope than avoiding being taken advantage of. He says, because of what Christ has done for us, we have a new vision of one another where all the former dividing lines are broken down, and now instead we look for ways to express what Jesus did on the cross in relationship with one another. So we look around with, at, at those in the body of Christ with us, and instead of seeing another person just defined by their uh, economic status or their family status or their racial background or whatever it might be, we would say, I see someone in Christ. I don't uh, remove those other things as though they don't matter, but I see a husband who is in Christ, uh, a wife who is in Christ, an employee as one in Christ. I see a, a business owner is in Christ. And what he's calling us to do is in relationship with, other, one, with one another, put on those attributes that Christ had. Jesus was humble. Jesus was patient. Jesus bore, bore up underneath others. Another place to look at how Jesus does this is over in Matthew chapter uh, 12. Matthew chapter 12, uh, an interesting event happens where he heals a guy. And you say, well, he healed a lot of guys. Yeah, but this was interesting. Jesus went into the synagogue. And there was a man there with a withered hand. I don't know the diagnostic code of a withered hand. I don't know if it was leprosy or was a birth defect or what, but he had a hand that wasn't functional, wasn't right. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? So we discover right away it's Sabbath day. It was against the law according to their law code to heal on the Sabbath day because that was considered work. So they wanted to accuse Jesus of violating the law. And Jesus says this to them about the man with the shriveled hand, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will take hold of it and lift it out? And you think about it, okay, if I had a sheep and he fell into a pit, then most of you like me are going, I've never had a sheep. I don't know that I've owned a pit. How many of you, if your daughter was driving home from work on the Sabbath day and the car broke down, would drive out and tow her home? Sorry, it's Sabbath. She's going to have to walk at home. Now, I know some of you would do that. It's your deal, not mine. Well, the reason he asked this question is because he knew the common practice was if your sheep fell into a pit on Sabbath, they could get it out. That was considered no big deal. Of how much more value is a man than sheep? So it is lawful to do good on Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, and it was healthy, just like the other hand. The Pharisees went out and conspired against him to destroy him. So here's the point that Jesus wants us to understand. Verse 15 of Matthew 12. Jesus withdrew from there. Many people followed him, and he healed them, and he ordered them not to let everybody know about it. And this was in order to fulfill what Isaiah said. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles." He will not quarrel, he will not cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles have hope. So what Jesus was particularly good and fond of doing was encouraging and strengthening those who, in the Lord, their, their light was about to go out. 
He says, a smoldering wick, that the, their spiritual life is as dim as it could possibly get and still be considered spiritual life. He would not say, oh, you're uh, so weak for you. I'm cast you aside. I'm going to look for brighter lights than you. He says, a smoldering wick he would not put out. He would protect it, and he would slowly wave and fan it into flame. And a bruised reed, he wouldn't just snap it off or we're going to start over again. That's cold-hearted. He, he, he presents himself as the Savior for those who are faltering and those who are weak. We look at the weaknesses of ourselves and others and consider it a liability for the kingdom of God. Jesus looks at our brokenness and the brokenness of others, and he sees hope for his healing. He sees hope for the power that he has to bring to bear on our character flaws. Jesus has compassion to those who are faltering. Jesus has compassion to those whose ways aren't uh, figured out just yet. That's harder for us to do. We look at people around us who live differently than us and we say, man, uh, are they ever going to get their act together? And Jesus wants to call them into new life and to find hope in Him. What's it like to be humble? In Ephesians 4.3, he, said, 4, 3, he, or he says, uh, or 2, I should say, uh, relating to each other with humility. We love to humble ourselves and be under those who are worthy of our humility. Sure, I humble myself under that person because they're so great. They know a lot of stuff. They know what they're doing, and they're an in-charge kind of person. I'll, I'll be gladly humble themselves myself unto them. That's not the kind of humbling he's calling for here. He says, relate with one another, knowing the hope we have, humble yourself under, under people you would never normally humble yourself under. Consider others greater than yourself, but they're not greater than me. Consider them greater than yourselves in the, uh, in the bond of Christ, in the community of believers. He says, he says express relationship to one another with gentleness instead of harshness. Bear with one another. It's interesting to me at the end of verse 2 that he says bear with one another. What is he assuming when one of the commands of living a life in a manner worthy of our calling is that we bear with one another? What's the assumption there? We wouldn't need the command if we were easy to get along with. Remember, he doesn't command us to do things that we do on our own. Notice the Bible never commands us to breathe. Because we could hit that one out of the park. He says, bear with one another. Why? Because it's kind of hard to get along. He says, I want you on purpose to know, entering into the community of believers who are fastening their hope on a future glory, that getting along will be difficult. Number one, because all kinds of different kinds of people are going to find Christ. And number two, people who are finding Christ are doing so because there's a bunch of stuff wrong with them. Then pack all those people into a room together. And how are they going to get along? Well, only if they bear with one another in love. Meaning, I don't fasten my hope on you finally getting your act together. I fasten my hope on the fact that one day you will in glory. To have patience with one another. It is not good for you, or you shouldn't congratulate yourself when you're patient in line at the coffee stand when there's no one else in line. You ever pulled up to the coffee stand, your favorite coffee stand, there's no, line, no one in line, and they've got your drink ready because you're in there several times a week. You're like, boy, I'm so patient. All 30 seconds this transaction took, I didn't get upset. Now, 
see what it's like when there's 10 cars in front of you. Now it gets worse. You ready how it gets worse? The other side of the stand seems to just be flying. Have you ever done that? You pulled up to the, to the coffee stand, and, you, and you, you're trying to pick which side you want to go on. So, okay, pick this side. There's only one car. There's like four on the other side. And pretty soon they're all gone. This doesn't happen to you? And then all of a sudden they're handing 17 trays into that one car. It's like there's clowns in there. It's like they're like, how is this possible? There's one guy. See, patience, patience is not a big deal when there's no reason to be patient. He's calling for us to be patient with one another because he's saying, you're going to lose your mind. They should be further along in their walk with the Lord by now. Why is, uh, why is this still happening in their life? Why haven't they learned their lesson yet? And he calls us in the unity of brotherhood, in the unity of having our hope fixed on another place, to have patience, to humble ourselves under others who we would not normally humble ourselves under, to be gentle with one another, to be patient with one another. We're slower than we think. To bear with one another in love, not merely to put up with one another, but also in joy, uh, to, to joyfully bear the burdens one another carry. He says, I want you to have this community of believers who fixes your hope on a thing, which is the glory of God in Christ that one day we will experience together and have your journey now together characterized by that hope. Again, I'll try to illustrate this. This is, it's silly, so bear with me. Two gates at the airport. One gate is an airplane. It's a commuter flight. You know these flights, it's all business people. They got to fly to Portland or San Francisco, or they got to fly up to Seattle. They're going to fly up there, do their work, and then fly home that night. You've been on those kind of flights, right? Everybody there has flown a million times. They've all got their briefcases. The one thing you don't want to do to any of these people is talk to them, especially if it's early flight and they haven't had their coffee yet. They're going to get on their plane. They're going to open their life. They've got to get their reading done. They've got to get ready for their meeting. They're going to get off the plane. They're going to do their business. They're going to come home, right? Right next to it, is an airplane going to Hawaii. And everybody's showing up. It's 28 degrees outside and raining. And everybody in that gate is wearing shorts and a Hawaiian t-shirt. Or a Hawaiian, uh, yeah, whatever you call those things. And those, it's like a party. Because they're all going to the same place. And they're excited about it. And, and they're not even dressed right for the occasion because they don't care what the weather is here. I'm worried about what the weather is when I land. And we're going to land and they can put the flowers on my neck. It's going to be awesome. And see, the destination has completely altered those two flights. And what Jesus is saying is our destination as believers should completely change how we relate to one another in the body of Christ. We're going to a good place and we're going together. It's going to be awesome we shouldn't be living now as though we're in a waiting room in the doctor's office. Our, our community of believers, we should have eagerness. We should have hope. We should uh, look for the ideal uh, things for one another. How can I humble myself and serve? And, and I can do this with joy because I don't need it to pay off today. One day our hope will be certain where we're going. Why do we sometimes hope that people will be now only what God intends for them to be then? Sometimes we're very patient with our own brokenness and difficulties that we face in our Christian life. Okay, but God hasn't finished with me yet. 
And then the person next to us says, well, God hasn't finished with me yet either. And, and then you say to him, yeah, but I thought he'd be further along than he is. Our hope ought to inform our relationships with one another. Hope gives us a new direction, walk in a manner worthy of calling, and hope gives us a new vision of others as those who have also fixed our life on the hope we have in Christ and the eternity we will spend with Him, and it should change how we see one another, and it should change how we see the community of believers. So finally, in verses 4, 5, and 6, hope gives us a new community. Let me read uh, the last three verses here again. There is one body, there is one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The Bible says there is one body by the Spirit, one body, the body of believers, the, all the believers who have received Christ by faith for forgiveness of sins have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, and we form the body of Christ. And the tendency will always be as believers to divide. The default move of Christians is to divide in the church, not to unite. It will always be a difficult uh, thing to do, to unite together as believers. In fact, it started very early in the church, Acts 15, uh, beginning in verse 1. This was going on. Some men came down from Judea, and they were teaching the brothers this, unless you're circumcised, According to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So what some religious people were doing were saying, hey, you're Christians, that's good. We're Christians too. But just keep in mind, good Christians get circumcised. They went down to Jerusalem and they were going to have a meeting about this. They thought, we'd better figure this out. This is a big deal. People are getting saved and then slipping back into their old habits of circumcision. Yeah, I know, that happened. Today, none of you are struggling with it. I'm struggling with a lot of different sins. I'm not struggling with sin of falling back into getting circumcised. And so they go down to Jerusalem, and they're going to have a meeting, and all the apostles got together, and the elders got together, and this is verse 4, they declared everything God was doing among the Gentiles. Some of the believers who belonged to the Pharisees got up, and they said, just a reminder, it's necessary to circumcise the Gentiles if they're going to be in Christ. So the apostles and the elders, they all got together and they thought about it. And after much debate, Peter stood up and said this to them. I'm going to read what he had to say about this. Brothers, you know that in the early days God, God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So what had happened is he had had a vision that all foods were now clean. There was no longer a Mosaic law on what you could and could not eat. And he was sent by God to a guy's house named Cornelius, and he shared the gospel with Cornelius in Cornelius' house. Cornelius was a Gentile. And Peter even said during that occasion, it's against the law for me to walk into your home. But Peter did so, and he walked into his home. He shared the gospel with Cornelius and his household. They all got saved, and then the Holy Spirit came upon them just like he did at Pentecost. There was great wind. Fire came down on it. It was a powerful experience. It was a way that God let everybody know the Gentiles have as much of the Spirit as the Jews. And so Peter is reminding them, keep in mind, fellas, I proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles, and they are just as much Christians as any other person. And God, who knows the heart, he bore witness to them, Peter said, by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. 
And he made no distinction between us, that is, Jews, and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Verse 10, now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor us have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. He says, why do we put the yoke of obligation on their necks? We couldn't even follow it. He said, the Jews couldn't follow the Old Testament or couldn't follow the law? Of course not. Read the Old Testament. They only break it on every other page. He's saying, why are we putting, oh, you've got to get circumcised to get saved. What are you talking about, guys? We couldn't follow the law to begin with. Instead, he says, we believe we will be saved through grace in the Lord Jesus. We will be saved through grace in the Lord Jesus. Hope gives us a new community, a body of believers that says, why are you a good person? Because Jesus is good. I trust that his goodness is my goodness. You don't seem to be well-behaved sometimes. There's some things you should, yeah, I know. I repent of those things. I want to live differently, but I still struggle with them. But I'm going to trust in Jesus' goodness. What do we have in common? We're trusting in Jesus' goodness. What do we have uh, together? We have a hope that one day we will stand in his presence, and finally this old sin nature will be gone. The only way to have this hope is in Christ alone. There is no Jesus plus. It's not get saved and then get your act together. It's get saved and now you're righteous. And then he calls us, because of the love we have for Christ, to walk in a manner that's worthy, that's in a manner that's similar to the hope we have one day. The body of believers, what we have in common is Christ. He is our righteousness. It's hard to have Christ in common if we don't need Christ. This is the difficulty that was faced in Acts chapter 15. It continues to be faced today. When Christians don't need Jesus, they don't have much in common. If we are already pretty righteous and we just need Jesus to make up the difference, we will never have a whole lot in common. The commonality we have is, without Jesus, I'm a dead man. Are you that way too? Okay, we've got all in common we will ever need to have. Whether you're a business owner, whether you come from the same ethnic heritage as me, whether we're of the same economic status as one another, it doesn't matter. Without Christ, we're dead. And this is what brings together the hope of the believers. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, is because without Him, we're, we're done for. And this is the body of hope, the body of Christ, the church, the home of the Holy Spirit by Christ in us. Hope gives us a new community, the community of hope in Christ alone. All right, two more verses. I want to read them. We've got plenty of time. Does that mean uh, it's, not even, it's not even one yet? Romans 12, beginning in verse 3. Romans 12, beginning in verse 3. This is what the Bible says about the body of Christ in Romans 12, and then I'm going to flip it over to 1 Corinthians 12 after this. For, the, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Excuse me. For 
as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. If our gift is prophecy, then, purport, then do so in proportion to your faith. If service in serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So he says here, here's what happens. The body of Christ, the Holy Spirit moves and works in each one of us, and although we have the unity of the Spirit, the one Christ, he brings us into a body, and the grace given to each one of us functions differently in the body of Christ. So each of one of us has different gifts and different faith and grace apportioned to us. So you might have one person who has the gift of encouragement. They're a great encourager. And every time you're in their presence, they're encouraging, and they're amazing. You never want to leave them. You feel amazing. You have another person who has the gift of encouragement, and they make you feel okay. I mean, they're not super encouraging, but they're not discouraging, so that's something. They say, well, they can't both have this gift of encouragement. Certainly. He's saying some will get a full gallon of grace for their gift of encouragement, and the other one will get, be given a cup and a half of grace for the gift of encouragement. And you say, well, that's not fair. You can take that up with God. Why would he do that? I don't know. Paul talked about it this way with his buddy Apollos. Rephrasing what he said to the church in Corinth, he says essentially this. This is my translation of it. Apollos could read the phone book and you'd love to listen to him. Oh, man, he's coming up to the bees. He always kills the bees. I'm just realizing some of the kids are, what's a phone book? The illustration isn't for you anyway. He could read the dictionary. Do you use dictionaries? Do we? Okay, never mind. Whereas the Apostle Paul could get up and read Charles Spurgeon's sermons, if you've never heard of him, Prince of Preachers, and people are like, so how are we doing, Paul? Going to wrap this up? Daytona's on. And that was by his own admission. He said, listen, both, both Paul and Apollos had the gift of preaching and teaching. Apollos, he, he just, for whatever reason, the Spirit worked. He talked People responded. Uh, the Apostle Paul got up, and they're like, hey, you know, I had some good points in there. You kind of lost me there in the part where you were talking. Maybe jot that down into a book, and I can read it at my leisure, Paul. That would be great. He said, well, that's not fair. That's not the point. He says, we're called into the body of Christ to do what we have been called to do by the Spirit in order to function in oneness with the body of Christ. Each one of us should understand by uh, being busy about the work of the kingdom, knowing how has God gifted me, and be busy about it. And some of us would say this. We'd say, well, you know, I'll get involved. I'm going to use my gift once the church gets its act together. So the leg is saying to the body, once you can finally run a nine flat hundred meters, I'll join you. And the body's going, how are we going to ever run? If one of the legs is on the sideline. He says, he calls us by the work of Christ in us to participate in the work of the kingdom of God together in accordance with the gift he's given us. That's what he says over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 14. The body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot 
should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. So the foot says, you know, I'm not a hand. You sit it out. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as He chose. If all were the same, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. God has put together the church as a whole and the local body of believers precisely as He meant to precisely as he meant to, to call us together as a body of believers to do his work. You say, well, I don't know if I have a lot to contribute. You do. You might be a toe. But God has called each one of us by his spirit to walk in a manner worthy of our hope, and that is to engage fully in relationship with one another, where we humble ourselves and we have patience and we bear with one another. And secondly, to jump into the community of believers and say, God, how do I make connection with others that I might use my gift? How do I walk and, and leave my old way behind to have a new vision for hope in the community of believers? I'll ask this question. You probably have other places you know people, either at work or maybe a club that you're a part of or uh, hobbies that you participate in, and those are all fantastic. Don't stop. But you say this from time to time, if not out loud, to yourself. You know, I get along a whole lot better with the guys at work, the guys in my golf club or my running club. or I get a whole lot better with the folks I hang out with doing our, our hobby that we enjoy. And the people at church, you know, I just don't get them. I just don't get them. Why is that? I think that's a fair question, don't you think? Well, I'm going to answer it somewhat sarcastically. If you manage to find a bunch of people who are just like you and love the same things you do, it's not surprising you get along pretty well. And that's the exact opposite of what God is doing in the body of Christ. God's intention, His plan for the body of Christ is to get a whole bunch of people together who would not normally get along. We would normally be the Hunger Games up in here. That was for the kids who didn't get the phone book joke. But instead, by the Spirit, we can have connection with one another. We can humble ourselves. We can serve one another. We can use our gifts. And the Spirit of God will bring glory to Christ that a bunch of people who would not normally hang out together are actually having deep and abiding relationships with one another. When was the last time in the body of Christ you had to bear with someone? Relationally, not just they wouldn't walk into the lobby fast enough if it was raining on you. When was the last time in the body of Christ you had to intentionally humble yourself under someone else who you knew should be under you? When was the last time in the body of Christ you had to exercise patience, a willingness to wait? When was the last time in the relationships in the body of Christ you had to calm yourself down and say, no, I'm going to be gentle, not harsh? If it's been a long time, it's because you have relationships that are treading water on the surface. 
Because needing to do those four things, according to Ephesians, is the normative practice of the body of Christ. We should know one another to the degree that when we're driving to church in the morning, it's not, God, I hope it's a decent service. It's, God, I know that so-and-so is going to be there. I'm going to need your spirit to be gentle with that so-and-so. And we're substituting so-and-so for a bad word. He said, well, that doesn't sound like very much fun. Well, if you want normal, you can go into the world and get normal. The body of Christ is something wholly different, where people who, by the power of the Spirit, can relate to one another, can serve one another, can have the joy of community and connecting with one another on on a relational level that's better than just things we enjoy, things we have in common. The joy that comes from hope in a community like ours is that we have connection with each other that goes deeper than the superficial. And this is where it gets challenging. I'm going to make a point here. You may or may not agree with it. In the body of Christ, we make connections with people, not with events. We make connections with people, not with events. Now, we do stuff. We have men's stuff, and we have women's stuff, and we have a worship service, and we have youth group, and we have home groups. But you will never make a personal connection with a platform. The only time you will have distinctive, deep, abiding, spirit-empowered relationships in the body of Christ is when you develop deep relationships with others in the body of Christ. The idea of a church getting together on a Sunday morning is not to get together and connect with whatever's happening on this wood platform. The idea is, I'm going to see my friends there, people I would die with if I needed to, and we're going to sing together, and we're going to submit to the Word together, we're going to serve together. And my challenge to you is this, in the body of Christ, you have to be developing those connections and those relationships. That's the whole idea. That's the whole point. The mission of those attending a a local body of believers is to connect with others and to look forward to getting together for worship here, in a home group, in other meetings, whatever it might be. We have one hope. He is Jesus. And we experience the body of Christ when we experience that hope together in connection and in relationship. All right. One hope. What does that hope do for us, do in us? Just review and then we'll close. Hope gives us a new walk, a new direction. We walk in a manner worthy of our calling. That is, we have a a different destination in Christ, and our life here and now should be informed by that. Walking in holiness, walking steadfastly, and walking with others. Uh, Our hope gives us a new vision of others. We should see one another differently as those who have hope and seeing others as those who have hope in Christ. And finally, hope gives us a new community, the body of believers, where we can jump in both feet and make connections uh, with one another.